And we even know the stories around kind of where people coalesce and, and why they're here um, and, you know, how they see Austin as home. Um, it becomes easier for you not to sort of think that you can align with those particular folks or individuals. And I think for us, we wanted to make sure that that was embedded in how we wanted to see the world and, and the notion of we just want to see more black and brown people win. Welcome to Wise and Wine, a play on the phrase, rise and shine. Now look here, folks. I've had five jobs in the last two years, and that shit just ain't normal. Or is it? No, no, it's not. So I'm turning to diverse people who inspire me both professionally and personally with careers that didn't exactly start at point A and end at point B. We'll explore how their families, their cultures, and their communities impacted their career decisions, as well as the exact moment they decided to pursue their passions, even if that passion wasn't a direct path to a pension or 401k. Hopefully, I'll come away knowing how they became the badass, the confident, the strategic people that I admire. And if I don't come out of this project a little wiser, well, at least I'll enjoy the boozy wine ride. You guys, so when your girl got divorced, my plan was to move to Chicago and be a single lady in her 40s, living her best life, building her dreams in this wonderful city. But, um, you know, the way divorce happens, you have to wait a certain amount of time. Um, and I, that point I had had a year lease on an apartment. So I was like, yeah, let me just stay in Austin for a year and have a year of yes, a, a year where I just say yes to anything. So any weird thing that pops up as an event or thing to do in town, I'm going to do it. So I did everything from trap bingo to some concert called Utopia. I think it's one of those things where people go for three days and do a bunch of drugs and listen to, uh, tech music I think I saw Moby and Wiz Khalifa it was it was weird and I'm was not <laughs> ready for that but um since then I've kept up with different events and activities and things to go to and so an event popped up that I was like oh hell yes and the event was called Noir Brunch and Noir Brunch was coordinated by a group called Of Color and Of Color is an organization that aims to amplify creative arts of color through intimate cultural events. And so brunch to me sounded intimate and cultural as hell. So I called my friend B and I was like, girl, we're going to brunch with a bunch of black people. And she's like, oh, fun. Should we invite my white husband and your white boyfriend? And I said, hell no, this is for us. And so we went and of course we're nerds. So we showed up super early and we ended up talking to a woman in the parking lot and we were talking to people as the event was being set up and you know there's just something that feels so good when you see a bunch of people that look like you together because you know the population of Austin is not such that I often see a ton of people that look like me unless I go to spaces that are curated for people that look like me so we got there and listened to an amazing 
band and there were artists there doing art, live art. And so we sat down and we were talking. And uh, at one point, one of the founders, Stephen, came up to to our table and he, you know, he thanked us for coming and told us a little bit about who he is and about up color. And uh, your girl was a couple drinks in. So, you know, I had to tell him all about the podcast. And so he introduced me to another woman that was there who had also started a podcast. So we started talking to her and it was just a really good day. And it was good to see a multi, I don't know, a multimedia event between the art and the music and the brunch. And then of course, as your girl got deeper and deeper into her cups, as my dad calls them, um, I started getting mad because I started seeing white people there. And I'm like, what are you guys doing here? (laughs) And so, but it was a lovely afternoon and I got really interested in the events that Of Color was coordinating and realized they were doing big things. Things like um, a black arts weekend, a Latina arts weekend, fashion shows, things like that. And so I wanted to learn more about um, the organization itself. So I reached out to Stephen and asked him if he would do the podcast. And he said, of course, but Stephen is book busy and blessed. And so it took us a minute to get on the calendars, but we got it. We're here. We nailed it down. And the thing that I love about the podcast is that I think it's going to go one direction and it it ends up going in a totally different direction. And so I thought we were going to, you know, we were going to talk about Stephen's career path, but I didn't realize how closely his path had mirrored mine. And he like, was somebody that didn't have a lot of professional mentors, not only in school, but also in your career. And so like me, he he made a lot of mistakes about where he ended up and being in jobs that he was super overqualified for and being in jobs where he stayed at for far too long. Um, and one of those that we have in common is that we both used to work for uh, for-profit universities. And we'll talk a little bit about how, what a soul-sucking experience that is to work for a for-profit university. I will talk about that in an episode because it's something very strange about working at a for-profit university. I can't speak for all of them. I'll speak for the one I worked for. Stephen will speak to the one that he worked for. But it's a very, very weird experience when you truly walk in thinking that your goal is to help people and to get people the education that they need to really kind of change their lives. So we do talk about that, but Stephen's really guided by that principle, the principle of let me make sure that people have access to the things that they need and that they've got clear access to the things that they need, whether that's professional work or um, cultural events and cultural activities. And so he is a natural community organizer. He's a natural connector. And you'll hear all of that from him. I appreciated it. And it spoke to me. So I hope you enjoy hearing about the big story of the life of Stephen Hatchett, the founder of Of Color. All right, Stephen, welcome to Wise and Wine. What are you drinking? This is what I got on hand so far. This is Yellowtail. This is this is you starting your night. I like it. Yeah, definitely. So tell me about what you consider to be your career path. So that could be from when you had your first lemonade stand to 
wherever. So wherever you think your path began. Um, so I think we all start in our career with an idea of where we want to be or the, 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 um, I guess whatever that may look like, right? So for me, it started off with knowing that I, I, I was in love with technology and kind of wanted to do something with that more formally. So I, I immediately went to co college undergrad and, and thought, you know what, let me do computer science. If, if I had known in 2001, what I know right now uh, for context, uh, it, software engineering with 10 years that are that's really good, like even B level, Mm -hmm. They can they can command close to five hundred thousand or more, mm -hmm. um, but they also work crazy hours and all of those different things. So that's the thing too. So, I, but I noticed that when I first when I got into it, that you know it just was a lot of math. It seemed boring um, at this point in computer science. Um, this is right around when the tech boom was actually sort of um, beginning to emerge and. It just didn't have a lot of knowledge you have now, hindsight 2020. So, and then I took pre-calculus and psyched myself out um, and switched over to information technology. And then um, went into the job market, found out that um, just wasn't marketable and school didn't do a good job of doing the due diligence of helping me to mm -hmm. find a role, which later became my job literally 15 years later um, and started off my career at Kaplan University selling education, right? Selling, on, selling online school to, to folks um, before online thing was a thing, right? Because in 05, 06, this is, and I'm, I'm aging myself right now because people are like, they had internet in 05? Um, but yeah, and that was right around when Facebook was coming up and getting this stuff done. And I, the funny thing was I was talking to somebody recently about, yeah, they were telling me what they had to do with Facebook and how the, the old iterations of it. And then I said, you remember when you had to scan your pictures? And they were like, no. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay, like people did that. You had to scan your pictures and you need to make it work. You know what I mean? Um, and so I... Kaplan University didn't work. I got fired after, I think, the summer. Um, I, I think they, because they wanted you to enroll people and, and it just was so predatory. And this is a time back when um, this really was you selling education, which is illegal by the US Department of Education. Mm -hmm. They would have these sales goals. And as soon as they would, like the US Department would come in and kind of audit them, they would make you take those sale goals down. Um, so it worked out. I just remember one time where somebody, um, I had to, was talking to this, this, this single mother in New York and um, who didn't have internet and really was just happy to have somebody to talk to. And I wound up selling her education and I just felt so horrible about it, right? It just wasn't something that was a triumph to me. Mm -hmm. um, and then they kind of make that noise when you get an enrollment. And I'm just like, this should make you feel worse. And luckily I got fired um, and um, I got the opportunity maybe a month later to go back to school as a grad assistant. I ran track and field in college, um, was an All-American my junior, my junior year. 
um, placed a conference both years. And I, I did run track in high school. It was just something I always loved. And the coach got a job at Alabama, at uh, Jacksonville State in Alabama. Um, I didn't want to live with my mama. So it was just like either get on a one-way ticket, Greyhound to Alabama or stay here and figure it out. And I chose to go to Alabama um, for, you know, two years. And coach, you just learned a lot about yourself. That to, And if they had a PhD program, I probably would have stayed in. I don't know why they did because I kind of love school and love learning. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe 15 years later, um, I only worked in higher ed ever since. Um, when I graduated, I could have got a job at um, an arsenal base, but just didn't have any guidance. And it just felt like I was just doing this on my own. So I made a lot of mistakes, stayed in the job too long um, that I was overqualified for. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, t- I think right around 2016, um, I got the opportunity to do a fellowship with Education Pioneers in New York. And because I didn't really have that that list of people around you, they call it your executive board of directors. Um, just was making a lot of career mistakes because I didn't sort of think I needed any advice or didn't really have strong mentors that could sort of push into me. Yeah. And I think for me, late or early 30s and late 30s Steve, the trajectory of what happens when you're in crisis just, just seems different. Because then it's just you by yourself, you figured it out, you're hyper-focused on how to feed yourself. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward a couple years later, you have this incredible network of people um, who want you, who are excited to see you expel. And when I had to quit my job recently, I got a job in two weeks as a contractor doing um, executive search. Wow. Um, paying more than a job I left. And... So you go from um, really looking at 2016 and saying a job that could have landed me in New York, uh, which I said no to because why would I want to do that summertime shy, which is really undergirding of um, just being afraid Mm -hmm. and not wanting to take yourself um, seriously or just not knowing you should or knowing what that actually looked like. Um, you make up excuses. And a year later, I got the opportunity to leave Chicago again. And that's where I'm from. And it just worked. Worked at HT as a director of career services. Um, First HBCU job. And again, back in um, coming full circle in 2005, really feeling like I had no one that can help me to think through internships or how to prepare for these entry-level jobs. It became my job to plan it out for undergraduate students. And I think it just kind of um, worked out and found out that I was really good at it and left the institution better than what I came in with. Um, one person for 1,100 students, wow. I left with um, someone under me paid um, with somebody coming in with also sort of connections um, because of HT's lack of diversity. Austin's lack of diversity, they really saw HT as the end all when it came to kind of trying to fix it, which is impossible. Um, So I think for me, just to come full circle with um, still being in this field in some kind of way, helping candidates to find opportunity. 
Um, it's just been an amazing um, amalgamation of all of these different experiences that help you to be better at something you should have been doing a long time ago. Yeah. And I didn't realize how common our histories were because I worked at uh, University of Texas at Austin in computer science. I was an academic advisor for computer science students. Oh, wow. Nice. Uh, so now I had all these questions about you being a CS major. And I'm wondering if at the time, was it, you know, I think what we were finding there and in the engineering program is that a lot of the students weren't academically prepared for UT because depending on where they came from, they just didn't have, yeah. the, to your point, the calculus and some of that stuff where kids at Westlake have been having calculus since they were five, whereas depending on if you grew up somewhere different, that wasn't the case. And so you get into this really competitive program, but you're not academically prepared. Is that kind of what you experienced when you switched from CS to IT? Well, yeah, but it, it, it's also not that they're not smart enough. It's no, not smart enough. They just they just came in with a leg up. They came in knowing stuff where some students, depending on where they went to school, they may not may not have had some of that science. Like I see schools now in high school that have like full on academic, you know, computer science programs, and they have somebody who worked at Google or Amazon in their high school, teaching them this stuff yeah. early. So by the time they get to college, that stuff's easy. Well, yeah, no, definitely. I think it's about exposure and you see the prominence of so many different organizations, you know, nonprofits that are starting to sort of um, push the envelope when it comes to exposure at an early age of black and brown folks, right? You get girls who code or black girls who code or uh, code to college and so many other different angles. Um, and, and that is a testament to sort of them wanting to meet the need. And I think for me, I wish I'd have had that, right? Um, and I think for me, the, what was different was, I remember taking pre-calculus and failing every test. And he was like, if you get a B on this final, which is the amalgamation of everything you learn, I'll give you a D in a class. I crammed all night um, and then, and then I guess when I was challenged or got over the, the notion that I couldn't do it, um, that it became easier and uh, not easy, it became doable. And I think you get so many folks that are just psyched out that come from these communities where um, you either shame to being smart or yes. the idea that you could be more becomes the, the biggest obstacle and not really, really whether or not you can actually sort of do the job. Right. And what was your master's degree in? Public administration. Okay. okay. And then we also converged because I worked at a for-profit university as well, who shall not be named. <laughs> that one sued. Um, but and that was the experience that I had too, because they were like, oh, you're, you've got all this experience in college and come in and we want you to kind of get people who don't have traditional access or they don't have a traditional pathway to education and you can help them. But then I realized real quickly, oh, we've got sales goals. And oh, if I don't enroll this many students, then I'm going to get fired. And I didn't realize the business side of it and realizing that, oh, why are they hiring all these hot girls? It's so strange. I'm like, oh, that's why. <laughs> okay, cool, cool, cool. Mm. That was, a, that was a, a little bit of a soul-crushing experience. So you're probably thankful that you got fired. Yeah, <laughs> probably thankful. Yeah, I, I am too. And 
I, I pretty much, it was only two of them that I, I can think of. One starts with a C and the other one starts with, um, I, don't, I don't even remember, but St. Lax DeVry, I think was another one. Um, but yeah, no. And it's just interesting kind of like how, what, what year did you graduate? Um, my master's uh, was in 2000. I'm old. I'm back in my space. You're thinking about Facebook. I had my space. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, because I think so many of like what we were allowed to get into, inch way into, was based on how aggressive these folks were recruiting from our different schools. Right. And a lot of times, because we didn't get trained about how to find jobs in undergrad mm -hmm. or get access to a lot of these Fortune 500 companies, those are the jobs that we wound up in because nobody else would take us. Yeah. And um, that's a very interesting component to. Um, rites of passage um, for young professionals. Mm -hmm. I still count myself as a young professional. Um, not really, but, um, and I think that's a really interesting connection that we're having as far as just like, um, these are the places that we're allowed to thrive in, in 2021. We're just now thinking about kind of how do we break those molds and do something different. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was the thing too, because I, once I left UT, I was doing um, university recruiting for an engineering company. And so they were like, we got to recruit at UT and we need computer science majors from UT. I'm like, you know, HT is literally across the street <laughs> and we can go there too. And I would love to hear about your experience there at HT and kind of what did you implement while you were there with the students that better prepared them um, for their future roles? Well, so I think it's, 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 it's exposure all around, right? If you're talking to students who have parents who have never been to college, um, don't have any understanding of kind of like his level of impact on their social mobility, and you're telling them that um, your junior year, you need to be applying to these jobs in order to get into the Fortune 500, right? So it's that huge learning curve. On top of that, when they think about a part-time job, they're thinking about actually working at McDonald's or Mickey D's or anywhere else. And they're not thinking about getting an internship, right? Um, that pays them more money, right? Um, and, and it's just that level of just not understanding sort of what that process looked like um, and trying to sort of lift your, your life up. And even at the entry level per se, companies don't care a lot of times what, what, who are coming in, whether or not they're qualified because they're entry level, they understand that that is the thing. But when it comes to that mid-career or even at the executive level, um, if you can't prove that you know this and you are a person of color, um, then you're actually a tax for the level of, of um, discretion or empathy or grace um, that you should have got when you were um, coming out of college. And I think that's a very interesting thing. So my job was to work on scaffolding, learning these different soft skills as they matriculated from freshman to senior year and figuring out exactly what those touch points should be right. in order for them to be prepared um, so that our placement rates as an organization was at 90 or 100%, um, which no organization ever gets to. Right. And the problem was always sort of that political pressure of one, 
how do we do what K-12 does? Everybody knows in K-12 that the focus is going to college, right? Everybody is focused on that particular, that one singular thing. But in liberal colleges, a lot of times, or even the HBCUs, it's focused, the, the, the heel is just to graduate. Um, and getting people to sort of see past that, or even understand sort of how they work toward that middle of getting or aligning to um, making sure that these folks get that job making 45,000 or more became a challenge. And then you're asking, um, you come in as opposed to, and you're talking to faculty and they're already underpaid and overworked and you're telling them from their perspective to do more versus shifting their understanding or just doing, um, just working more in tandem with what, what those students actually need. Right. Um, and I think that was sort of creating this level of paradigm shift um, where they had to speak the language of industry. And when you're talking to somebody that has been doing psychology for 20 years and is still thinking about that job market from a perspective of what it was in 1970 and not what it is in 2021, mm -hmm. it just became sort of a really uphill battle. And I'm guessing you're seeing the same thing with CS probably um, as well. Yeah. Well, I think they're, they're pumping money into it in terms of the different programs that they have, like they've got more um, affinity groups around it, like the women in CS and, you know, Latinx students in CS. So they're, it's improving, but they also, they're able to do that because a school like UT gets millions of dollars from Dell. Like they renamed the CS department Dell because Dell sent them a crap ton of money so yeah when you have that you do extra stuff when you're not worried about keeping the lights on you can do extra stuff and so that was the challenge I had with hiring managers when they're like well this student from UT has done this 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 and this it's like well yeah when your school <laughs> when you got Chevron and Halliburton and whatever coming to your school it's easy to do this this and this like let's look at the students equally and 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 they create that culture where that becomes the norm, right? So that if a student is in SHIP or in NSB um, and they see the trajectory of these students, then it's easy to sort of tag onto that. But when that connection isn't drilled into that freshman um, and those organizations aren't sort of understood or even seen as a pathway towards social mobility, then you know you have an uphill battle. And then you have to convince the rest of the culture that that's the thing that they're supposed to be teaching folks. Mm -hmm. um, that's the problem. And getting there, you know, it definitely is an uphill battle, but it is doable. Yes. Um, but it will take sort of that paradigm shift a lot of times that, that takes five or 10 years or you doing what is hard to do, which is getting rid of dead weight. Um, and a dead weight isn't because they aren't good or not capable of doing a role. It's just, it's just so indoctrinated to sort of how things used to be. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Oh my gosh, we got off on a tangent on that. But um, you said that if you had stayed longer, you would have gotten your PhD. What do you think you would have gotten your PhD in? Well, it probably would have been public administration. Um, I would either talk at like TSU, as they have a PhD in, 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 that, in that particular field, or did sort of organizational psychology. Um, maybe switch that based on kind of I was really interested in like bureaucracy and why it sucks um <laughs> you know um and, and really just trying to like um think through how to make changes and so I think for me as a creative problem solver that's what I was really interested 
really interesting in that, but that became my focus when I was working at HT was to figure out ways in which we can kind of streamline and do things differently. And even to this day, because I left in July, people are saying, man, <laughs> we miss you. And, or, or they're saying like, um, you know, somebody said your name and then you become synonymous with what change might look like, which is really interesting too. Mm -hmm. oh, segue, thank you, I appreciate it. So you are a uh, founder of of Color ATX. And yes. the goal of, I don't wanna put words in your mouth, please share what of Color ATX does and why you felt the need to found it now. Yeah. Um, so of Color generally is an organization focused on amplifying um, the voices of artistic communities through action, through events, um, and um, to do it in a way that is also inclusive, right? So um, when I came in 2017 and I was going to a lot of these different artistic events or just um, art, art events, and it just was one of the most depressing things I can even, I, I can imagine. Um, mainly because it was mostly predominantly white or mainstream from that perspective in Austin per se. And um, I just was like, I'm coming from a very diverse space where when you go to something that is um, that has a cultural relevance to you, you're not begging to be seen, it already exists. Mm. Um, and over time, I felt like because folks didn't really kind of understand that or couldn't comprehend what that actually meant, um, my definition of the diversity had to change to sort of get them to understand or see the level of scale uh, and, and recognize how far down from what something should look like was um, in comparison from my viewpoint and, and trying to compare it to where we were in Austin. And I think over time, I kind of built out doing other types of events um, to sort of help folks kind of engage uh, we I did um, an awesome transplant movement in 2018 where we were doing happy hours the downtown to get more young professionals to go there and sort of just intermingle and be around each other. Um, we did sort of Black Dating Society um, with um, Queen Zaza. And the focus of that was to get more singles to intermingle and talk to each other. Um, and we we did about three or four events of those with hundreds of people coming out and sort of enjoying themselves. Mm. Um, and then for me in 2018, um, I, I remember sort of how much fun I had going to sort of art eclectic type of event setting um, embodied sort of the visual art perspective, but also sort of rethought what visual art could be. And, and in 2018, we did our first gallery show at Carnegie on Navasota and Cesar Chavez. And, um, and I did it specifically with sort of um, a group of people. Um, it may have just been my idea, but I also have two co-founders that started Of Color with me. We met at a coffee shop and Of Color was born. And from that, um, we, we did a little bit of, of pop-ups um, trying to encourage art and culture and people um, and that became sort of our MO. And we were set to do a large gallery show in March of 2020. 
and you know what happened, <laughs> right? And at that point, we had built a lot of momentum and brought on uh, other team members. Folks moved, some on the team moved away. And um, when the vaccine was coming out, we kind of saw the writing on the wall that the opportunity to do something huge and big and to come out swinging might be a possibility. And we did Black Our Weekend with just three people. Wow. Um, hosted wow. at um, Cloud Tree Native um, and various galleries on the uh, east side, maybe two actually. And we incorporated art and music into that particular event. And we were able, and doing Juneteenth of all times, when you had everybody mama trying to do something, I think I counted maybe 12, 12 to 13 different events. Wow. Um, but even wow. despite that, we were able to um, carve out a place of uh, 450 people that entire weekend um, to get access to what we were actually selling. And that was a momentous moment. And what we found out in, in creating that, that it, it just might be an opportunity for us to kind of do this um, for Latinos uh, in the area. And um, I remember reaching out to a friend of mine who um, I met um, at, a, at a party, a picnic, um, who was also a videographer. And I just remember asking him, you know, who, if we wanted to do something like Latino Weekend, who would, um, who would be a good person to kind of reach out to to make that work? And he connected me to Monica and we invited them to VIP night for Black Art Weekend. And they immediately saw kind of like the inflections of what we created and how it can be duplicated in a way that could be actually authentic. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think between that merger of what we uh, wanted to create, um, the revenue that we pulled in is what to be able to do this um, again. Um, we built a team of about 10 um, and we doubled the participation rate from 450 participants to probably close to more like 750. Wow. Um, and all while also having a pivot from doing that during the Hispanic Heritage Month to November, which put us right in line with another event we were doing the week before, um, a fashion show. Um, and it was just insane. And, you know, luckily we pulled it off. The fashion show went off without a hit. We, I want to say we, about a hundred, we sold out that particular event. Um, and we recently did sort of, I feel like Kanye as well through our creative director uh, of, of Color and sold about, he sold about 500 tickets for that. And one of the things we started to learn as we were kind of building out this ecosystem of cultural arts events um, is if they're led by people of color, then the diversity naturally happens. Mm -hmm. If it's not, then that's just, that's just not the case. Right. And what was cool about that just sort of realization was, I remember when I was at, I feel like Kanye and a young lady came up and was like, just so surprised. I think she went to UT or somewhere. Um, and she stated, I was expecting this to be really white. And <laughs> this kind of blew my mind, right? Because we know what that means, right? Instinctively. But um, again, when you're trying to can, can, um, explain that to somebody who necessarily doesn't understand uh, the, the nuances that goes into sort of that acknowledgement, it just becomes sort of an uphill battle because you have to then educate them on the lack of diversity that exists, why it exists from a legacy perspective, not just in sort of the current moment. And, you know, 
you're exhausting yourself to teach them something that they should already know. And that, that also becomes sort of part of the problem. But I think for us, as we think about of color in 2022, um, I think we're working on kind of figuring out what we do well, um, streamlining that in a place where we can actually learn from it and replicate it pretty easily so that we can grow and do more things. Because the thing that is, is coming up is when we think about diversity in the arts, the problem is, and this is just true for diversity and inclusion in general, and you know this from uh, working in corporate, is we can't just do in and out, right? It has to be sustained. Mm -hmm. um, but we also need gatekeepers to help with that, to help sustaining those conversations past just that moment. Mm -hmm. um, so that's also work too, because then you have to um, figure out who was really built to do that because it just can't be us, right? It also has to be sort of a communal process um, and connecting to sort of folks that are attached to the so-called mainstream um, tied to that particular artistic community to also buy in and do that work to make sure that when these when these events actually happen, that um, we're not having these all white events, we're having a more intentional practice where um, if we're doing an event to educate folks, to get them to see that these communities exist, then they have to do to make sure that they actually sort of absorb them into that process of inclusion um, in order for this to actually sort of be the type of city that leads to the type of retention that we deserve. Yeah. When I, I met you at Noir Brunch, I'm trying to, I think I saw it on Instagram and I told my friend, I was like, we gotta go. And I'm not sure why I was surprised by the multimedia approach to the event. Like there was music, there was art, and there were some items on the menu that was curated for the attendees. So it's having so many things taking place at once at a function. Do you've got to do that because people have a short social media attention span or is it purely for exposure for the different artists who are participating in the event? I mean, it's exposure, but also with the understanding that Austin is ready for a higher form of event mm -hmm. and everybody should be stepping that game up to meet that level of attention to detail, right? Mm -hmm. um, because if a lot of our, our our founders on our on our of color team, they're from New York, they're from Miami, they're from Portland, they're from all of these different places where um, they're they have in order to compete, they ha things have to be done well. Right. Um, and so for us in our mindset, we we are going into it from that perspective of I have to produce an event that I would want to go to, mm -hmm. and if I do that then it's, it's going to get, be guaranteed to be good. Mm -hmm. And then those people who honor and, and, and mess with of color or any of our affiliates, they understand that, that we are demanding the same level of attention to detail um, and event management or logistical prowess mm -hmm. to get us to sort of an outcome that leads to folks leaving with the idea that this is the, the most amazing event that I've been to. The issue is, is you have to also teach the public who have been let down um, in a lot of ways. If they go to, out of five events that they might go to, only one is well attended or two are well attended, but that's enough for them to be inconsistent because they think that if I go to this event, it's a chance that it will suck, right? Because I've been so disappointed in the past. And so now we have to also deal with that as well. So, um, cause back pre pandemic, 
events didn't sell out, hmm. right? But post-pandemic or pre-post, um, or events, they are, right? Um, and that's a really cool dynamic that I'm, I'm, I'm sensing um, as po a possible new norm, hmm. um, despite the fact that, you know, Black folks are leaving, Black and brown folks are leaving in droves. Hmm. Um, and the 16 hundred dollars it costs for the average rent it's not helping either right yeah and i would say for you you're you came from chicago and you mentioned that some of the other folks you come from have other cities for people not from people who are from austin and don't realize hey there's other things out there <laughs> can you talk about the richness of chicago you talked about maybe having um learning about art and culture and how expansive it is in Chicago. So based on your experience there, how are they, how is Chicago the same and different from Austin and what are some things Austin does right? And what are some things Austin needs to improve? So I think somebody really told me once that you should never compare two cities, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm doing that on the, on the auspice that they're, they're different, right? Um, but, what I loved about Chicago was I have a lot of different interests, right? I just um, became, got into photography in the last year. Um, so that's another thing on my resume. Um, but I also have arts, I have sports, I have um, as things of things underneath my repertoire that I'm, I'm excited about. Also poetry, I taught poetry to at-risk students for 10 years. Um, and any parts of those things that I was interested in, it was a community that I could automatically tap into without having to sort of build it from scratch. Mm. And so I got the ability just to sort of be a chameleon um, and go to these different spaces, figure out who those community people were and build that, that repertoire of individuals that no matter where I went to, I would already know somebody and it would feel like home automatically. And so if I went to an art event, I was gonna see one or two people from the, from the scene who I could immediately hang out with, go drinks, and it just be sort of, it just feels so normal. Mm. Um, and that became my norm for the 10 to 12 years um, after undergrad, when I went back to Chicago um, from grad school in Alabama, and it just was an amazing feeling. And they also had like onboarding um, ramps to these different types of things that were institutionalizing the fabric of um, the cultural art scene in Chicago. So every second Friday in Pilsen, which is predominantly Hispanic, um, they have a street with maybe 12 to 30 um, different art galleries that every Sunday you go at seven o'clock, they open their doors, and you're sipping wine for two hours and, and examining the different facets of art in a way that you normally couldn't do, right? Um, in, in a traditional city that doesn't, hasn't cultivated around the access and using art as a way to really communicate with people. Mm -hmm. or, and then on the third, fr third Friday, it's at a whole other neighborhood, focused on different types of artisans, different types of communities and different types of, um, um, cultural attachment to what that particular event and that night meant to the artist, artist collectors as a part of it. And they were, they had space, they had a gallery, right? That they can 
um, as an artist and sort of create and, and be a part of that community. Um, and, you know, it, it would shift and it would change, it would morph. And so any part of those different days, your level of access to sort of these, like this, this um, what I like to um, call just sort of, um, this is manifestation of just an amalgamation of just artists and art. And you just couldn't, when I came to Austin, I just felt like I was devoid of all of that. You imagine being so spoiled and then you come to a place where all of the on-ramps um, say go left as opposed to right. Um, the, the microcosms of how they exist and how to find them are so hidden that you need a peephole in order to find them. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the level of folks willing to work with each other to build it, but because they haven't actually experienced that or don't understand why it even needs to exist, mm-hmm. it just became sort of an uphill battle that, you know, they won my fight. So for three years, for me, it was more like, okay, let me buy my time. Let me do what I need to do in order to build my resume and go somewhere else. But I want to say three years in, my mentality changed because my identity around where I was and how I was supposed to be a part of that community changed. Mm. Um, because I, I, when I created that paradigm shift, um, it started to think about, started to think about it, but I'm seeing all this opportunity in Austin. I'm seeing all these things that don't really exist. Um, instead of seeing it as sort of a problem that I can't solve, what if I actually could? Um, what if, because um, I also see myself as a community organizer at heart, being collaborative and getting people together is sort of my bread and butter. Right. Um, it's what I love to do. And, and when I see a problem as a creative problem solver, my instance is if I don't, if I don't see anybody else willing and able or capable of pulling it off, then maybe I can. So where does all this come from? You being a networker, a collaborator, groundbreaker, community organizer, like, is that come from your family? Is that inherent in you? Like, where did that come from for you? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've just always been a team player, right? I played sports most of my career. Um, and it's always been something to sort of wanting to sort of push things toward a common standard, right? Because um, I'm also a very, not only about being a creative problem, I'm also a connector, right? And I think if you break down what being a connector actually means is being able to actually recognize patterns um, and work to help other people identify those patterns in a way that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So when I was making all these connections and things that made sense about how the world worked, um, it just became easy for me to kind of start to sort of conjure people toward that, that middle. Um, in order for me to make sense of the world, it just seemed to be so crazy. Because so many people have these different understandings of how they should exist in the world, um, and also traumas that that defer them from that that middle. Um, it just felt like I was always having multiple types of conversations with people, um, which helped me as a people person, right, to sort of align with sort of what somebody was talking about or how they said or their mannerisms to to match that to sort of match their energy. Um, but when it came down to thinking about as a connector, as a, as a community organizer around um, 
that seeing that there's a better way to do things is way more efficient. Um, I think that kind of breathes into sort of the, the idea of um, what needs to happen in the city like Austin um, in order for it to make more sense for people of color and for them not to leave. Mm. And um, we talked a little bit about what that may look like from a the scaffolding part, right? Of these larger mainstream organizations thinking diversity is just, I'm gonna do this one a second, these one or two events. But it's it, it also means that you have to sort of include maybe four or five different points and that main anchoring organization from a diversity standpoint has to be a part of all of them in order for when you get to that major event, um, like a fashion week, thinking about fashion design, um, we don't know about it, right? Um, or we don't think we could actually be a part of it because we don't think those were made in our image. Um, and oftentimes they're not. Um, and sometimes that's intentional and other times it's not, but still, um, you have to be able to understand that it's, this world is not just about that one person or that one group, it's about all of us. Right. Um, so I think just to answer the question um, more broadly, um, it's just always wanting people to sort of see the world how it's supposed to be seen um, and always wanting to sort of have my circle um, be filled with people that may not look like each other or have this, have similar tastes, but can all coalesce around art or our common our common um, our common points of mm -hmm. origin. Mm -hmm. And I think um, the more we can do those things, the easier it is for us to kind of see a better outcome. Um, because so much of what we're looking at as far as the future is so based on um, who's in power and how they see the world. Mm. Um, that we, as little people in that same power dynamic, um, it's just easy for us to sort of think that we don't have any power to change it. Right. And I'm not gonna lie, when I went to Nora Brunch with my girlfriend and Felt that there were white people there. I got irrationally mad. And I don't know why. I couldn't really, I was trying to rationalize it and find a reason that satisfied me. Because, like, on the one hand, you want events like this to be exposed to a wider audience and you want people who support this that may not look like you. But I also kind of felt like I wanted this for ourselves. Like, this is a one place where it could just be us. And there they were. So, when you're planning events yeah. with, of color, what is the balance between? for us and by us and everyone's welcome um the best thing is not to not to try to um control that because we can't right we're the only eight percent of the population here but what's interesting about austin that eight percent also is bulged in between sort of that 20 to 45 year old range so we do have a high population of young professionals because of the tech scene here. So that means that 8% really would look like a 20% in Austin, I'm sorry, in, in a place like Chicago or anywhere else. Um, the other thing is um, because black folks run the culture, right? Um, and something looks good. Um, we then pull in other demographics that naturally want to be around cool events. And 
So for us, that it might not be that we can control that, but at the very least, we can actually sort of orchestrate an outcome that is pleasing to everyone, specifically the people who feel the most, um, who have the most to gain from us being able to survive and, and, and do it well and, and make it work, which is black folks yeah. and brown folks yeah. as well. Because again, when we set up color, the other thing that we, we, we recognize is that we can't just focus on black folks because it's just not enough of us. Um, and folks don't even know, like it's also this 35 to 40% Hispanic. Um, and for whatever reason, we, we see it as being 15 to 20% and it's not. And for me, the unwraps to sort of the, the Brown community that seems just so um, a little foreign um, because they also are so entrenched. And we don't know the stories around kind of where people coalesce and, and why they're here um, and, you know, how they see Austin as home. Um, it becomes easier for you not to sort of think that you can align with those particular folks or individuals. And I think for us, we wanted to make sure that that was embedded in how we wanted to see the world and, and the notion of we just want to see more black and brown people win. Right. Um, um, and if we can do that one event at a time, we're okay with that. So how do you determine which events are a win? So we got a retreat happening this, sun, this Saturday um, to try to determine what our next events will be. But I think for us, visual arts just seems sort of a, a natural blend to kind of um, what is to come. But also too, if we're able to build a team, can we also do other events in between those large scale events um, in order to sort of satisfy our network? Um, so I think whatever comes out of that will be kind of how we see the future of, of color going into sort of year two. Because remember from Black Art Weekend in June to December, um, that was six months. So we did, Black Heart Weekend, no, no, our brunch came out of that brunch that we did on Sunday, where we had 129 people come to. Um, and we wanted to make sure we're creating some level of um, camaraderie and community that we can replicate. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed really easy because you already had a connection to Tillery, strong, you know, dope DJs. And we just kind of wanted to see what we can, what we can build from that. Um, and then from that came the fashion show um, because we already had a friend doing that and a group doing it called Boss Movement. Um, they work with models already. Um, they work with designers. Um, and we had access to sort of venues and capital to help secure those venues for those organizations. Um, and because as soon as because from Black Art Weekend, which is, which is June, we have 500 Instagram followers. Wow. So from, from, from that to now, we are close to 2,500. Um, you know, we see this growing in a way where our major or large events like Black Art Weekend and um, Latino Art Weekend becomes like an Art Basel um, regionally um, and then nationally. Um, and, and or how do we take those different um, events and duplicate them for other organizations or other cities who have depleting black and brown populations um, and let that be the thing that cements 
um, or elevates those communities of color uh, around art in a way that they normally couldn't do themselves um, because it's not, it doesn't have the capital, it doesn't have the framework of why that needs to exist or, or how it can exist. And, um, you know, see what we come up with. Because in Chicago, we have a cultural arts community, um, a multicultural events department where all of these different events are being sort of strategized in one place and organized in one place so that everybody has access to them yeah. as opposed to sort of these one-off organizations that are so internalized where those different, the folks outside of those communities don't even know about it. So they can't support in a way that's actually inclusive. So um, we're building out a model that we hope works. Um, so I think for us, um, you know, figuring out and streamlining and, and, and making sure that we are putting on events that make sense is the model that we're gonna go for for year two. And then hopefully from there pivot in a way that allows us to capitalize on some of the successes that we had in a way that helps us to scale more affordably uh, going forward. All right. What is your dream event? If, if time and space and money weren't an issue, what's your pie in the sky dream event that you would like to see of color ATX coordinate? I mean, I, I think I would love an event that we did every month that became sort of like transcendence, right? It's a community that um, black folks knew to go to and was excited to go to, um, and it actually lasted, right? Right now we're doing the Noir Brunch every quarter because we knew for a fact that it's just awesome just wasn't built to have monthly events and be, and be well attended for whatever reason. Um, and it just, and I, I, I want us to build uh, an Austin um, that I can figure out that right formula and for Off Color to be a part of making that work. And my last question for you, because this is not your full-time gig. You have a whole other job <laughs> that is not this. So in, so in terms of like balance and just kind of managing your time, like what is the, the key that you found that you can do both successfully? So um, right now I'm doing executive search or headhunting um, with a firm out in Connecticut. Um, it's a national firm um, with, uh, founded by a managing partner, uh, Tracy McMillan. And in that role, my job is to execute the different searches that we do have that are national um, in a way that is um, the most efficient that we can possibly be. Um, while working with diverse candidates at the CEO, C-suite, uh, or vice president level. Um, and, you know, it's just been really fun to kind of take the work that I've been doing at HT for the last four years and do that a little bit more formally in a way that <laughs> I'm, well, I'm better compensated for, of course. Um, but also, too, I'm also intuitively engaged around being able to kind of do it in my sleep because it's working with people. It's um, has a tent to diversity to it. And it's just also helping people move into social mobility um, that they normally couldn't have done in the past. So um, being able to be a part of that um, in this very new journey that I'm on 
has been really interesting and kind of complements the idea that I, I want to settle down and have more kids in the future um, and not have to go to a night event at eight o'clock on a college campus. Um, so creating that work-life balance, so I'm better able to sort of spend my time and do passing projects like Of Color. Um, and you never know, man, maybe Of Color becomes sort of um, a, a $2 million organ nonprofit or for-profit um, that are doing these events all across the world and country um, in a way that um, has art as its center, um, diversity as its core, and the idea that um, collective strategies around putting black and brown people at the forefront um, is also not only a very profitable idea, it's also a worthy goal. I lied, this is my last question. So you are new to photography and yes. you had to capture one perfect day in Austin in photographs for somebody who's not from here, somebody who is a person of color that you wanna to convince to come here, what images would you capture in that one perfect day in Austin? Um, I would I would claim images on, on 12th Street, um, other iconic spots on the east side um, would probably be maybe the contrast of the gentrified east side versus sort of the oldness uh, that still exists here. Mm -hmm. um, I would take a picture of symbolic images like I-35, right? And how it juxtaposes against sort of um, uh, white flight and um, black exodus. Um, um, and maybe images of sort of also the beauty of Austin, which is sort of like Lady Bird Lake, um, people running, um, people hiking at um, the different hiking trails or McKinley Park or, other places and really try to juxtapose all of those things into an amalgamation of Austin is a lot of things, um, but it is also sort of an infant in what it can be. There you go. Steven, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. So where can anybody who wants to learn more about you or of Color ATX, where can they find you? They can find us on Instagram at underscore of color. Um, you can also go to ofcolor.org to find more information about us. Um, you can also follow my Instagram page at Stephen the Photog um, or even stephenhatchetphotography.com uh, to see more of my work. Um, and that is about it for me. All right, we will do it. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. No problem. All right, bye.